0: We've never spent really any time in the book of James, but it's an amazing book, and eventually we will. We'll go through this, this book. I think it's especially helpful for America today. It talks a lot about humility and practical wisdom. James is kind of like Proverbs, but for the New Testament. It's truth in street clothes, and one of the recurring themes uh, is humility in this book. Humility. Some people call this the Gospel of James, and it's the Gospel of Humility. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Resist the devil. Submit yourself to God. Um, It talks about that over and over, and if I had to summarize what the book of James is really about, this would be a great place to do that. Chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Um, He is challenging Christians to adopt the right attitude toward their life. This is a real challenge. He's contrasting, I would say, two different um, views of life. One is the practical atheist, and the other is, this is my father's world, and we're going to look at both of those. I don't know if some of you have been in the church for a while. You've probably heard that hymn sung at one point This is my Father's World. There's a couple of verses or stanzas in there that go like this This is my Father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrongs seemed off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. So that's one perspective on your life as a believer. And the other perspective is to maybe acknowledge God on Sunday, maybe to pray over a meal, uh, but live the rest of your life as, for all intents and purposes as a practical atheist. Not really acknowledging God, not really depending on Him, not including God in your plans, marginalizing Him, squeezing Him out, making Him peripheral, not really central in your life and in your thinking. And that attitude is really... Those two attitudes are contrasted here in James chapter 4, and we're going to look at both of them. Living your life under the dominion of God, doing so joyfully, gladly, thankfully that he is on his throne and that you're not, nor would you want to be, because he knows how life works best, and he knows what's best for your life, much better than you do, obviously. Uh, Basking in his protection, basking in his provision, basking in his paternal care. And the other is just basically ignoring God. And I would say blatantly forgetting God. That's in this passage. How to forget God and and profess to be a Christian at the same time. Because listen, James is a pastor and he's writing to believers. The word beloved or brethren is mentioned 11 times in this book. James is a pastor. This is a pastoral epistle. He's very warm. But there's times where James, you can tell, he's, he's getting a little bit aggressive when he says, Come now. In this passage, in the, in the English Standard Version, he is really gripped. He's taking his audience kind of by the shoulders, as it were, by the face and saying, listen to me, I'm concerned for you. I want to talk to you about the way you're thinking and talking about your life. And I know some people would read this and think, ah, this is just semantics. Just say whatever you want to say and then say it, if the Lord wills. No, this is not just about adding some pious jargon to your conversations. This is, as you know, the Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is, right? Right? Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So this is not just about the way we talk. This is about the way we think about God, about our life, about our plans, about the future, and really about everything in between. Suffering, death, thriving, flourishing, success, failure, obstacles. All of those things are included in this. And James is a good pastor, and he is challenging his readers who are Christians with love he's challenging them. And I want to challenge you too. This is, you could call this preventive medicine. This is not by any stretch a reactionary message because I've heard you uh, not do what this passage is doing. This is just a great reminder for all of us, myself included. I'm really preaching a sermon to myself and I invite you to listen here. Um, So a a lot of people, how would they define practical atheism? Well, some people would just think of atheism and say, well, it's a flagrant disregard for God, for his presence, for his love, for his power, for his authority, really. It's, It's living like there's no tomorrow. James will say, yes, that's atheism, but he's talking about practical atheism. Whereas an atheist lives like there's no tomorrow. They adopt the pagan Greek model: let us eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Um, the practical atheist lives like he controls tomorrow. He's autonomous. He's self-governing. He's got this, baby. He's got it. He has no need for anybody else. He's self-sufficient. Thank you very much. He's the captain of his own soul. He may not say that outright. It's not so much as what is in his planning, but what's not in his planning. God. That's what this passage talks about. And in some cases, sadly, some professing Christians, can we be guilty of that? And our church would be no different, you would be no different from any other believer living in the first century who would read James' epistle. So let's take a look at this passage. And again, I'll remind you that he's talking to believers. He says, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. That's the idea, that's the attitude that he's confronting here. And listen, James is not nitpicking. This is a very serious issue for him. So here's my question. What is James confronting here? What's, he, what's James upset about? Um, doesn't the Bible commend hard work? Does it? Yes. Does the Bible say that planning is a good idea? And being earnest and diligent and, and thinking ahead, having giving forethought? Yeah, those are all good things. James would even talk about that. Okay, maybe he's upset about wealth. You know, he kind of seems to have an axe to grind with wealthy people in the next chapter. He's talking about you wealthy people howl and, and, and cry and lament. It wasn't just their wealth, it was their greed. So maybe this is about greed. Is that what James is upset about? No, it's not. He's not upset about greed here, as you'll see. Well, what is it then? Is it that these people didn't include a, a Bible study in their plans? <laughs> you know, We'll go to such and such a place and we'll, re, we'll read a psalm and then we'll know. James is not upset over... Uh, the little things like that. In fact, this would be a good time to say this. As your pastor, I probably don't say it enough. Um, The shape that this takes is a person that's traveling. He's a merchant. He's going to go to a place. He's going to buy goods. He's going to sell goods. He's going to make a profit. Um, And you may be tempted to think, well, you know what? James is, is against this kind of thing because that's so secular, isn't it? That's just so secular. There's nothing really spiritual or sacred or Christian about it. A lot of people think that way. And when the, the Reformation in the 1500s and 1600s came, um, and you mentioned Martin Luther earlier, Duncan, Martin Luther was a figure that, that we can thank God for him because he's the one that really threw the gauntlet down on this. So many people back then were making this false dichotomy between what was sacred, the work of the clergy, the work of the priests, the work of the nuns, and what was just kind of secular and blah, you know, people that work secular jobs, they work in... Not that they had factories back there, but the person, the, the cobbler, the, the tinker, the people who, you know, work on the roads and cut hedges down, those people were just doing secular work. Luther said, no, 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 no. All work is sacred. All of us. This is my father's world. This is the Christian's workshop. There was even a phrase, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, all can do their work to the glory of God. Whether you're a teacher, whether you're a plumber, whether you're a computer programmer, or whether you're a pastor. Uh, all of these things can be and should be done to the glory of God. So that is definitely not what James is saying here. In fact, even though he's talking about a person who's going on a year or two-year travel, he could just as easily have said this. Come now, you who say, uh, we will start a family next year. We will have, you know, children next year. Or we will get married next year. Or we're going to go to college and get a degree in this or that next year. uh, Or I'm going to retire next year. Or I'm going to start a new career next year. Or, or he could even be saying this. I'm going to start this ministry next year. See, we're not immune to this either. It's, it's planning your future, planning your life, and marginalizing and squeezing God out of your plans. That's what it's about, and it hits all of us. Uh, so this is not... James is not upset because this doesn't seem to be spiritual work. He's upset because they're ignoring God and their plans. That's why it doesn't appear that anything's inherently sinful on the surface of this. But if you dig more deeply like we're going to do, you'll see this. Um, that's why James is confronting this. And, and you can tell that he's upset because look what he says here. Look at the language. He says um, in verse 16, As it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. James is calling this way of talking and this way of planning and thinking evil. And the word for evil there is the same word used for Satan in the New Testament, for the evil one, Pane Ross. You are thinking and acting just like Satan. The one being who said, remember in Isaiah, I will ascend to the throne. I will become like the Most High. I will be in charge and in power, high and mighty and lofty. He's saying you're thinking and acting just like that. But he goes further and he says, you're boasting, you're bragging in your plans. Like we don't need anybody, we're self-sufficient, we have everything we need. He said, you're acting and thinking just like Satan, Satan, you're bragging about it. And then at the very end of this, look at verse 17. So whoever knows to do the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. He calls this evil, he calls this uh, sinful bragging and boasting, and he calls it sin. And the word that he uses there for sin is the most common word in the New Testament. Maybe you don't know this. This is really interesting. The word is hamartia, and it means to miss the mark. Have you ever heard that before? So the image here is there's a target that you're firing at, and in the center of that target uh, should be the glory of God. That's why we all exist. God created us for His glory, to ascribe glory to Him, to live for His glory, to honor and exalt Him, right? And He says when we sin, we miss the mark. Here's what's so interesting to me. Idolatry, which is another way to describe sin, You know, there's always something sitting on the throne of our heart. We're always worshiping. You guys know that. You don't start and stop worship. You're always worshiping. You're always aiming at something. When you sin, worship doesn't stop. It changes directions. So when you sin, you're firing at a target, but it's moving. It's moving far and far and far away from God's glory. So James is saying, you guys are worshiping, but you've completely missed the target of God's glory. You're aiming at your own glory. You have missed the mark. So this is a serious accusation. And you say, what's so serious about this? Kind of ignoring God, not talking the way James wants us to. Have you ever been forgotten before? Anybody in this room ever been forgotten? Man, that's, that hurts, doesn't it? <laughs> to be marginalized, to be forgotten. And the Bible actually calls that a great evil in the Old Testament. It calls that a great evil. In fact, um, Tim Keller said this. Let me read this to you. He said, it's one of the worst. It's one of the most ruinous. It's one of the most pathological, fundamental, guilty, and terrible, and dangerous sins of all uh, simply to do something, conduct a relationship, conduct an appointment, make a decision, go about your life, set goals, work your schedule without reference to God, not thinking about Him, forgetting God is a serious sin. Man, that like ups the stakes a little bit, doesn't it? Have you ever been forgotten before? Made light of? Been marginalized, it's very painful. You know, you feel completely diminished. You, f- you, feel like, you feel like you're just getting translucent and eventually you're like evaporating. It's a painful thing and that's why it's so significant. When the Old Testament talks about this, it uses very significant terms. And in the Old Testament, there's a place in Jeremiah chapter 2 and God's talking to his people, his covenant people, and he says, um, Can a bride forget her ornaments? Um can a virgin he, he says, can a virgin forget her ornaments? Can a bride forget her wedding bell? Uh then why have you, my people, forgotten me? And you think, what in the world is, is he talking about here? I've done a lot of weddings in my life. Man, it's cool to be able to say that. I'm 43. I've done a lot of weddings now. Um done a lot of them. And I've seen brides and grooms forget a lot of things at the wedding. You know, sometimes they'll forget the, the license, and I can't do the wedding until somebody goes and gets it because I'm breaking the law. They have to get a wedding license to get married, uh, so that I can stay, say at the end, based on the authority invested in me by the state of Florida, I now pronounce you da-da-da-da, right? Some people have forgotten the ring. Some people have forgotten important, you know, stuff that they needed. I have never to date, ever seen a bride forget her wedding dress <laughs> or forget her makeup. And this is not a statement about women and wearing makeup. This is, God says this in the Old Testament, uh, a bride doesn't forget that. Why? Because that, she wants to be the most beautiful that she's ever been in her life. She wants to present herself in the best possible light possible, right? And God is saying in Jeremiah, um, you guys remember the things that are important to you. But as far as me, you've, my people forget me. And he says, days without number. Does a bride forget her ornaments? Does a virgin forget, you know, uh, to dress up, to, to bring on a suitor in the Old Testament that was important to them? He says, but yet my people have forgotten me days without number. And he calls that a great evil. It's really interesting. In Psalm chapter 9, God had some interesting things to say. Listen to this. The wicked shall return to the grave and all the nations that forget God. That's really interesting. You're like, Pastor, you don't talk about this a whole lot. I know, this is, I want to more. I've been thinking about this a lot. You know, we just preached on the Tower of Babel a few weeks ago. It's the same idea, this godless ambition godless unity, uh, and even godless worship that happened at the Tower of Babel. They were going about their, their plan, forgetting God, marginalizing God, building their life without God. Uh, it's really interesting, the language that the Bible uses. If I were to ask you to describe a wicked person, how might you describe them? You don't have to say it out loud. You would probably think about sins of active commission, right? You know what Psalm chapter 10 verse 4 says? Check this out. The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God, God is in none of his thoughts. That seems kind of like blah, like anticlimactic. The wicked person, God is nowhere in their thoughts. It doesn't talk about rapists or pedophiles or serial adulterers or killers or anything like that. It just says God is, one translation says, in all their thoughts, no room for God. That's how the Bible describes a wicked person. That's what? That's forgetting God. God says that's the worst thing that you could possibly do, and Christians aren't immune to it. I mean, he's, he's confronting his covenant people in the Old Testament in Isaiah 9 and Jeremiah chapter 2. One of the most striking things that Jesus ever said was in Luke 17. He's describing the days of Noah, and he's describing the days of Sodom and Gomorrah before fire from heaven rained down. And you know what Jesus says? He says, when I come again, when I return to judge the earth, vindicate my righteousness, and gather my people, he said, it will be like it was in the days of Noah people would be eating and drinking building and planting marrying and giving one another in marriage until the end comes and you're like that's it (laughs) that's he's describing Sodom and Gomorrah in those terms and the days of Noah in those terms we know there was great notorious wickedness going on but the terms that Jesus used to describe seems like so anticlimactic what was going on it wasn't what they were doing it's what they weren't doing they weren't acknowledging God and their plans. They were marginalizing and squeezing God out. And man, that you know what's so interesting about that to me? That is so American. (laughs) Isn't it? That's so 2018 in America and in the West at large. I mean, listen, guys, this is the cultural air that we breathe. You and I are being conditioned by marketing, by ads, by, you know, we know that the Bible says the whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one. There's this idea of Satan has the world on his lap toying with it. Um, We are conditioned to think autonomously and and be independently, to cut off, you know, the umbilical cord from God and just do our own thing. Be our own person, be self-sufficient, autonomous, independent. This is the air we breathe. And James is saying, stop and examine yourself. Is this your father's world or isn't it? Is this the Christian workshop? Are you going to acknowledge God in your plans? Are you going to live like a practical atheist? Those are the kinds of things that he is confronting here. This is the attitude that he's concerned about. One book author said this, there's something far worse than having terribly bad reviews of your books. People attacking you, people saying, what a terrible book, what a terrible essay, this is awful, I don't agree with any of it. It's poorly reasoned, it's destructive, it's bad. This author said, there's something much worse than hostile book reviews. It's no book reviews at all. Much worse, much worse. There's something much worse than being criticized. it's to be ignored, because when you're ignored, you're treated as a nobody, a nothing. You're treated as a vapor. you're treated as breath. You're treated as something transitory and temporary. There's nothing worse than being forgotten. This is what James is talking about. I know that's a long introduction, and so let's get into our outline. Uh, which profile do you fit? Are you, do you fit the profile of a person who acknowledges God and says, this is my Father's world, I'm living in it, and I'm humbly, gladly, and joyfully dependent on God? Or do you fit the profile or, of a practical atheist? How can you tell? Here's our outline. Can you put that slide up? Three ways. Number one, uh, consider your attitude toward the uncertainty of your life. Number two, consider your attitude toward the brevity of your life. And number three, consider the attitude your attitude of the dependency of your life. We're going to move through these really quick. Number one, the uncertainty of your life. Check this out, man. The the guy who is saying this in James, he already has a time, today or tomorrow, a place, such and such a city, and a goal. We're going to spend a year there, we're going to buy, sell, and we're going to make a profit. Um, So what's the problem with talking and thinking and planning like that? Uh, The first one is this. Your life is so uncertain. (laughs) You don't have a clue what's even, we don't even have a clue if this worship service is going to finish today or not. Some of you think when I preach, sometimes you wonder if it's ever going to end, right? But we don't know. I mean, people went to the World Trade Center on 9-11 to conduct business. I will guarantee you the last thing in some of their thoughts was, this is going to be the last day I ever go to work. This is going to be the last time I ever ride on a subway. This is going to be the last time I ever go up that elevator. I'm not saying they did anything wrong. I'm just using that as an illustration. Our lives are uncertain. We can't even know for sure whether or not the sun is going to set on us on any given day. We can't even predict accurately the weather for tomorrow. We can have a basic idea. And so James is saying it is so arrogant. You, are, you, you can't even be certain what's going to happen tomorrow, let alone a year from now, especially in the ancient Near East when travel was so slow go. My mom and my sister and my niece came to visit us for a week. Uh, And I had a great time just catching up with them. It had been over a year since I'd seen them. And that was the first time they saw our newborn baby, Cooper. So they had a wonderful time. And And so I'm having to go to the airport to pick them up. And it's amazing. It's amazing how with a smartphone today, you can can plan your flight, your rental car. You can get within two or three minutes when that plane's going to touch down, what gate you're going to be at. I mean... I can predict from a week from now with some relative accuracy, accuracy if I were to fly to Seattle when I would end up at my destination with my rental car. And it's so easy it seems like. Um, and I told you this is the air we breathe. We take it for granted that you know what? This, this may not happen. <laughs> there, there could be an interruption in our plans. There could be a hurricane, an asteroid. There could be a tsunami. There could be a tornado. There could be a volcanic eruption in Hawaii that happened a few months ago. The future is so uncertain, especially when, writers, when James was writing this in the New Testament time. I mean, man, you had to load stuff up on a, a camel. Uh, robbers were everywhere. You remember the story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 10? He said, a certain man was traveling and he fell among thieves. You remember that? That was the air they breathed then. If you were traveling in Israel, man, you could get knocked off just when you came around the corner by a marauder, a robber, That's why people would travel in caravans. There was safety in numbers. Um, The Apostle Paul, when he was traveling once, do you remember what he said? Can you pull that slide up for us? The Apostle Paul wrote in, uh, I think it was 2 Corinthians, he was chronicling, he was giving a catalog of all of his travels. Check this out. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold exposure. Eight different times the word for peril or danger is used there. Eight different times. And that's just a a day in the life of Paul. And he's, you know, looking over his ministry the last three or four years. Travel was so uncertain. Your life was so uncertain. That's why I think it's Proverbs 27.1 says, do not boast about tomorrow for you do not know what tomorrow may bring, right? We don't know. That's why we have to commit all of our plans to the Lord and do what Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says. Acknowledge the Lord do not trust in your own wisdom. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge the Lord and He will make your steps. He will, he will make your paths straight. That's what this first point is really about. And you see that over and over in history. People that, that just presumed on God really. All the battles that were fought. One of my famous is, is David and Goliath. You remember their confrontation they had in the valley where Goliath is boasting and he says, Are you a dog that you come at me with sticks? Who is this stupid little kid who's coming at me with a shepherd's pouch, I mean, this is an insult to my dignity. He says, today I'm going to feed your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Goliath is boasting that. And not three minutes later, his head is cut off from his shoulders and and he's the one that ended up being bird food for the day. You remember? This happened all the time in battles. There was a famous battle in the Old Testament where King Ahab, who was the king of Israel... And King Benadad, who was the king of Syria, were about to go to war. And Benadad, the king of Syria, says, I'm going to crush your army, and I'm going to grind you into powder. And I love the, the, the wit of King Ahab, who turned, ended up being a wicked king, but God gave him victory. And he said this. He said, Let not the man who puts on his armor boast the way that the one does who takes off his armor. It's kind of a clumsy way to say It's like, don't count your chickens before they hatch, hatch, buddy. And it ended up being good advice because that other king got slaughtered. And listen, we do the same thing. We're not putting on armor and taking off armor, but we got all these plans in our head that we're making. Purchases we're going to make, places we're going to go, ministry we're going to do, relationships, family, vacations, retirement. And it seems like, man, we're believers. And at times God is like nowhere. We're not acknowledging we need his help. There's this uncertain element our plans may get interrupted. Lord, this is your will. That's just a way to really just cognitively acknowledge, man, we need God. Our future is so uncertain. But this is the air we breathe today. It is. I mean, we can check the wave heights in the ocean now. We can get on weather.com. It seems so easy to just squeeze God out of our plans. We can see going to the airport the other day, there were five alternate routes I could take because traffic was just a little bit slower. Man, if you're not careful, you start thinking, I don't need need to pray about this. This is good, I got it. I go to the airport, it'll take me 43 minutes, I'll be back in a flash, and we're not praying for safety. We're not praying for divine opportunities on the way to minister to somebody. It's just, who has time for God today? And we're not immune from that, because it's the air we breathe. That's the culture we're in. And listen, I've learned this over the years as a Christian. Culture is a blind spot to us. I'm talking about the Christian culture we're in. Sometimes it gets so toxic and we can't see it. My wife and I lived in LA for four and a half years when I went to seminary there. And when we were leaving, I kid you not, we flew over the city and I looked down and I said, what the heck is that? And she said, honey, that's smog. I'm like, no, it's not. She said, it is. I'm like, we were living in that? She said, we were breathing that for about four and a half years. And I'm like, we're going to die. But here's the thing. When When you're in that culture, when you're in that smog, you don't see it. You don't smell it. It's, just, it's like asking a fish, how's the water? <laughs> They'll be like, what water? What are you talking about? It's, we're just so naive to it. And sometimes the air we breathe is just self-sufficiency. We're so autonomous and independent. We don't need anyone or anything, including God. And we, we come to church on Sunday, um, and we say prayers before our meals, and we got the jargon down. But man, it's, are we really acknowledging God? That's what James is concerned about here. So the first thing is, uh, is the uncertainty of your life. And the second thing is the brevity of your life. Look at, look at his words here. This is so interesting the way he frames this. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. There's the uncertainty. And he says, what is your life? Man, this is a great I love James because he's so good at asking questions. There's like 12 questions in this epistle. He says, what is your life? You talk about a perspective, a provocative question. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. He says, you're like a puff of smoke. You're like a vapor. Not only is your, is your life uncertain, it's so brief. You may not last two more years. That's why he says, as it is, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, check it out, if the Lord wills, we will live (laughs) and do this or that. Forget the city you're going to, forget the goal you have of buying and selling and making a profit. If the Lord wills, your heart will keep beating, (laughs) right? He's saying life is so brief, it's so uncertain. You're mortal, you're frail, you're made out of the dust. You're a creature uh, that's made in God's image, but you're a mortal creature, Our souls are eternal, but our bodies for now, at least, are not. Life is so brief, he's saying. It's so brief. And I love it when Moses... You know, one of the Psalms that Moses actually wrote is Psalm 90. Can we get the slide up for that? I think I put it up there. This is what Moses said. In his old age, he wrote this. And this is one of the takeaways from this Psalm. He's talking about our mortality. So what's the takeaway? And he says this. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. You know, we have birthdays. We celebrate, like Mark, 35 years of of, uh, being married to the same woman, which is amazing. Praise God for that. We have long milestone markers and anniversaries and markings. And Moses here says to number your days. (laughs) Forget a birthday. Forget a 10-year, 20-year anniversary, reunion, or whatever. He says, Lord, we are so frail. We're so dependent on you. The future's so certain. Our life is so brief. Teach us to number our days. That means remind us that we're mortal. And you're like, man, that's a, that's a drag though. Who wants to do that every day I may not live? No, 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 no. He's not calling you to this morbid introspection. Well, I don't know if I'll live today. He's saying, no, this is a healthy thing to acknowledge I belong to God. He breathed life into my body. I pray for health, um, but teach me to number my days so I can make my life count. Teach me to number my days so that I can gain a heart of wisdom. That's what he's talking about. Only one life will soon be passed, and only what's done for Jesus will last. The word in in the original, there's a play on words in Greek here. It's appear and disappear. It's like a flash in the pan. Poof. Your life is here, and then it's gone. I love going to Cracker Barrel for a couple of reasons. One's the food. But another reason is it's kind of humbling, man, and sobering. When you're there, they have really old pictures and black and white of people that have lived centuries ago. You ever see those pictures? I mean, it's already unnerving. You're eating your dinner uh, beneath sharp, rusty farm equipment. But if you look on the walls, there's pictures of people that they're not here anymore. But they, when they were there, <laughs> when, when, when they were here and they were eating breakfast, they weren't, most people just don't think in terms of eternity, you know? They don't. Our life is so brief we can't see how fast. It I saw a friend of mine the other day and it had been about eight years since I saw him and I looked at him and I thought, man, you've aged. And he looked at me and said, man, where's your hair go? <laughs> it happens so quick, doesn't it? Life is so brief. Poof, it's gone. And God says, acknowledge me in your plans. Be dependent on me. That's what he's talking about. First Peter 1 says this, all men are like grass and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers And the flowers fall. That's why James is giving us uh, an antidote for this. He says, instead, say this, if the Lord wills. And again, James is not, this is not a little, this is not a prayer hack that James is giving us here, okay? This is not about semantics or adding some pious vocabulary to your prayer, to your words. In fact, that would get nauseating if every time we talk to one another, see you tomorrow, brother. If the Lord wills, <laughs> you know, every si- he's not talking about that. He's talking about this is the way we're supposed to think about our life, about our future, about our plans. If the Lord wills, we will live and go to such and such a city. Um, it's interesting. You can put this slide up. Andrew Fuller was a great Christian and a pastor, and he said this about that. He said, "I can hardly put my pen to paper without adding a parenthesis of God willing or the Lord lending me life." Let the critics. Censor it for bad grammar, I'm sure is good theology. He was saying, I know this is crazy. It's going to annoy and irritate and bother some people, but I can't hardly even write on paper my plans without saying God willing. And it's funny, if you go to the Bible, Paul said that a lot. When he was writing to the Roman church, he said, man, I'm trying to find a way in the will of God to come to you. He says in another place, I'm trying to get to you. Uh, I'm praying for God to provide a way, but Satan has hindered me. You know, the apostles are talking this way, thinking this way, praying this way, planning this way, and we ought to as well, when we're thinking about our life, thinking about our future. it's what the apostle James is, is, is telling us to do. You know, we, we say this, I was praying with somebody earlier, the Bible says, this is the day that the Lord has made, I will rejoice and be glad in it. That's not just a prayer for Sunday. And that's not just a prayer for clergy people or ministers, men and women who serve God in a special called out separate, not separate, but a vocation. Uh, This is for all of us Christians every day to just acknowledge, Lord, this is your day. And I know, I know things aren't going to go the way I planned. That's why right now I'm acknowledging you're on your throne. This is my father's world. He is good. He is wise. He is kind. He is seating on a throne of glory and power and providence Uh, and sovereignty and so I commit this day to you it's going to get interrupted but it will be a divine interruption my plans may fail but yours will succeed help me father when I encounter that uh, to acknowledge this is from you what does that do what what does and that's the third point here your attitude toward the dependency of your life the dependency of your life if the Lord wills what does that do well for one thing success won't go to your head right We will recognize that all all successes and all fruits and all profits are a gift from God. Doesn't James say that earlier? Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, right? So success won't go to your head. But here's maybe a better application for us. Failure won't go to your heart. When your plans get interrupted, that family you wanted to start, guess what? Infertility or just some kind of issue or health issue or just just not happening. You're like, what in the world? No, 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 no. Remember, this is my father's world. I'm living in my father's world. Acknowledging, God has a better plan for me for now at least. Or what about the family you wanted to start? What about the, the spouse you wanted to find? What about that degree you wanted? That job, that promotion you were really hoping to get? What about that church you wanted to plant and you wanted it to look like this and have this many people and this many elders and this many... Musicians and have this kind of impact in the city. Did you include God in your plans for that? I mean, I'm talking to myself here. It's to acknowledge when things don't go the way we want. And and let's just be honest. How many of you had the ideal morning already today? How did your How have your plans gone already, just today? Everybody get here on time exactly when you wanted to. Did you wake up on time? Did your kids all get ready just like you had hoped would happen? Probably not. Right. We can't even plan. can't even plan our morning, let alone our life. So this is just a great reminder for us. God is not to be forgotten. God wants, this is the glory of this. God wants to be included in your plans. He wants to be in the nitty-gritty of your life. The Bible says the hair on your heads are numbered. God says He wants to sing over you, rejoice over you. You are the apple of His eye. You're His treasure that He left heaven to come and retrieve. You're His bride. He's the groom. God wants to be included in your plans. He wants to be depended on. He's the only one that can bear the weight of your worship, right? We keep trying to climb up on God's throne and shove him off. That's what this language betrays, that kind of thinking. It's like, there is a throne, but I don't want God on it. I'm on it. I want to plan my way. I don't need to acknowledge him. That's what James is talking about here. This is about forgetting God. It's about practical atheism. And there's, there's another part in Isaiah chapter 49, because well, we're talking about forgetting God. We've said it's a great evil in the Old Testament. Uh, God equates that with being wicked in Psalm chapter 10, Psalm chapter 9. But we've all done it, haven't we? <laughs> Anybody here never forgotten God, never failed to acknowledge God, never failed to depend on God? I mean, the first two points aren't even really distinctly Christian. You can remember the brevity of your life and go absolutely bonkers and do stupid stuff, right? Have a bucket list. It's crazy. Or you can remember the uncertainty of your future and it can sober you. That doesn't mean you're Christian. It's the third one here, your attitude toward the dependency of your life. John 15 5 says, apart from me, you can do nothing, right? It's it's, the third one's the most important for James here. But haven't we all failed to do that? Aren't we all guilty? Anybody in here think you're Exonerated from this particular sin. Come and talk to me or, or one of our greeters afterwards and, and we'll go through the Scriptures. Um, if we say we have no sin, we lie and the truth is not in us, First John says, right? So how is it that God takes this so serious? He says, if you forget me, that's a wicked thing to do and you will be judged. How is it that we're not annihilated right now? How is that? Well, we'll check this out. When Jesus was hanging on the cross in darkness outside the city gates, naked, gored up, bloody, humiliated. And he cried out to his father. What did he say? You remember what he said? He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know what one translation reads? My God, my God, why have you what? Forgotten me. See, you and I deserve to be forgotten by God. That's, God basically says, if you forget me, I'll forget you. That's justice. That's what the Bible says. So, we've all forgotten God. We've all written God out of our plans. We've all written God out of our life. So, God is a just God. What do we deserve? We deserve what Jesus got. We deserve to be forgotten by God outside the city in darkness. That's hell, by the way. Hell is the one place where the attribute of God's love is going to be missing. God will be there, present with his wrath and his justice. I know those are heavy things to talk about, but that's what Jesus got on the cross. He was forgotten by God, he was judged he was forsaken, deserted, and abandoned. All of us in in, in this room, we deserve that. But instead, not only did God not forget us, you know what the Bible says? God remembered us. Put this, put this passage up. Look at this. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget. Yet I will not forget you. Behold I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) We've forgotten God. We've written him out of his life, out of our life. We haven't acknowledged, so we've failed to do that. Sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. And how does God respond? He responds with grace, doesn't he? He said, you are my child. You are my bride. I have engraven, I have carved. The images not only of intimacy, but pain. I have carved your name on the palms of my hand. I will never forsake you. I will never abandon you. So, the only reason that we don't get judged and punished for forsaking and forgetting God is because Christ took that punishment on our behalf. And we get what Jesus really did deserve. We get to be remembered by God, we get a special place of honor. We have been seated together with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's almost this, this intimate picture of Jesus sitting on His throne and Him welcoming us and sitting on His knee. I know it's crazy, but that's the image there of Ephesians 2, what it says. We will reign with him. We are heirs with God and joint heirs with Christ. Man, what a picture that is. Jesus was utterly and cosmically ignored and forgotten by the only person in the universe who mattered to him. That was hell. And we don't have to face that because of Jesus. Man, that's good news. So that's what this passage is talking about. It's talking about what is your attitude toward the uncertainty of your life, toward the brevity of your life, and toward the dependency of your life. Are you fitting the profile of a practical atheist? Or are you fitting the profile of a person who knows and celebrates and acknowledges, this is my Father's world. He's on His throne. I don't want to be on the throne. He's a much better king and a much better God than I'll ever be. So I commit my plans to Him and I say, Lord, if it's Your will, grant me success or grant me fruitfulness in this endeavor. Whatever it is, vacationing, planning, church ministry, uh, your job, your education, because um, those are the things that the, that's the nitty-gritty of life and, and God wants to be included in those plans.